Mom, Dad, look! It's an ancient Indian burial ground. Man, this place has got everything! An ancient Indian what? <laughs> Mr. Plute, Homer Simpson here. When you sold me this house, you forgot to mention one little thing. You didn't tell me it was built on an Indian burial ground! Welcome back. I'm Shane McClellan. I'm Lori Gum. And these are the Q-Files. In this special Thanksgiving episode, we will be examining the American pop culture trope of ancient Indian burial grounds and how it has deeply woven its way into countless horror films and books since the late 1970s. We'll investigate how it even seems to have infiltrated the oral histories of our local communities and how it undeniably influences our own individual attempts to explain the unexplainable around us, often even when it happens in our own backyards. For this episode, we were lucky enough to get writer Colin Dickey to talk with us. He is the author of four books, two of which we will discuss here. Ghostland, published in 2016, and The Unidentified, released just this year. Both of his books thoroughly break down the roots and causes of tropes like the ancient Indian burial ground. Dickey is a regular contributor to the LA Review of Books and is the co-editor of the Morbid Anatomy Anthology. He is also a member of the Order of the Good Death, a collective of artists, writers, and death industry professionals interested in improving the Western world's relationship with mortality. And Dickey's own website describes him as a cultural historian and tour guide of the weird. <laughs> Sounds like Shane and I have found a kindred spirit. To quote Dickey himself, We like to view this country as a unified, cohesive whole, based on progress, a perpetual refinement of values, and an arc of history bending towards justice. But the prevalence of ghosts suggests otherwise. The ghosts who haunt our woods, our cemeteries, our houses, and our cities appear at moments of anxiety and point to instability in our national and local identities. With that said, we began by asking Colin about the importance of putting the voices of the other back into the ghost stories and paranormal tales that have been left out by the cultural mainstream. Yeah, well, again, I mean, you know, to the extent that, as we were saying, a lot of these stories are kind of repressed attempts or, you know, attempts to deal with sort of repressed kind of unsettled legacies. Like a lot of the um, the perspective of such things come from, you know, the the perspective of, you know, you know, colonizer in, the, in terms of, you know, Native American, you know, burial grounds or whatever, you know. And so, like, they become ways of um, kind of... Uh, I guess, you know, demonizing is maybe a strong word, although it's sort of, you know, it's uh, it's in the right ballpark, but sort of demonizing the other into a kind of, you know, horrific figure of some kind of ghost or other kind of malevolent, um, you know, uh, feeling or sensation. And so I think that for other voices to reclaim those those narrative tropes and, you know, and the, and the very sort of form of horror and sort of... Um, kind of push against the way in which horror tends to replicate in a lot of ways, um, you know, kind of establish hierarchies, I think is, is really important. I mean, I think because, you know, the great thing about horror is it can it can work really well to, to destabilize those hierarchies and sort of push against, you know, kind of transgressive norms. And, and I think that's, it's sort of great liberating power and where it's sort of most fascinating to me. And now the Indian burial ground trope, an idea that was born into American pulp culture with the Jay Anson book, 
The Amityville Horror, written in 1977, followed by the film in 1979. What exactly is this trope, and how did it begin? Um, yeah, I mean, it occurs to me, it, it, you know, it actually, the, the trope of the Indian burial ground goes back a lot further than Amityville Horror. It goes, I mean, it goes all the way back to Philip Furneaux, who was a, an early, uh, like, Revolutionary War era poet, who I think has the first poem on, like, the Indian burial ground, where he sort of imagines, you know, these kind of very kind of noble, savagey, you know, kind of tropes about, you know, the, the kind of spirits of, the Native Americans who are, you know, sort of blessing this new country or some garbage like that. Indeed. Here are a few stanzas from the poem called The Indian Burial Ground that was written by Philip Freneau in 1787. Thou, stranger, that shalt come this way, no fraud upon the dead commit. Observe the swelling turf and say, they do not lie, but here they sit. Kind of spooky, huh? Yeah, so I mean, it, you know, like it, 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 it's really embedded in the fabric, I think, of, you know, United States um, Anglo culture as, you know, sort of colonizers that um, almost immediately as, as land begets, begins to get appropriated, there becomes this sort of question about, you know, what is this land that we've appropriated and how to deal with these, um, you know, the, the former inhabitants who are, you know, um, whose bodies are left behind, you know, and so um, Amityville is a really, uh, you know, sort of the, the beginning of the kind of popular culture moment is sort of a weird one because it's, um, um, you know, you have this murder, this sort of, you know, really kind of, you know, horrific family, you know, sort of killing. And then, you know, as the kind of paranormal events come out, this, this, it almost sort of feels like a kind of added flourish. Like it's not necessarily necessary to, you know, the ghost story as as such. Um, and obviously, it's it's fabricated. You know, the um, there are no records of anybody being buried in that in that part of the of Long Island. But it, you know, it sort of I think it you know it catches and it catches at a particular moment in pop culture where um, it kind of seizes people's imagination and thus you know it it you know works into Pet Cemetery, works into The Shining. Um, it's not, if I'm recalling correctly, it's not in the book The Shining, it's something Kubrick adds to the film. Um, Pet Cemetery, the novel comes out in 83. So, you know, so, so it actually sort of follows Kubrick's use of the, of the trope in The Shining. Um, you know, I'm sure much to Stephen King's chagrin because he really hated that, that movie, but, um, yeah, so it just starts like it starts to it becomes a really sort of easy go to kind of cliche trope. So it shows up in not Poltergeist, but in Poltergeist 2. White cultural sympathy regarding Native Americans seems to have been ignited during the 60s and gained momentum in the early 70s with films like Little Big Man, Billy Jack, books like Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee, and even the commercial The Crying Indian where Iron Eyes Cody silently lamented the litter and destruction of the land and, by implication, his land. By the way, Cody himself was an Italian-American actor and not a Native American. Not surprising. But also following all of this, in 1973, Marlon Brando sent a Native American woman to the Oscars to refuse his own Best Actor award for The Godfather because of the bad treatment of Native Americans by Hollywood. 
this was all happening at the same time as the early 70s recession and energy crisis with interest rates skyrocketing. This would seem the perfect storm of white guilt and homeowner anxiety that would create this trope by the late 70s. Right. Yeah. And and again, I mean, I think it's what's interesting about a, a trope like this is it, it I mean, as you mentioned, it, it seems to kind of um, kind of multitask in this way where it sort of taps into so many different anxieties sort of all percolating at once. And again, I mean, I feel like that's one of the things about that kind of Amity horror situation where where it's not the book itself, the original book. um is such a grab bag of just different kind of anxieties, you know, the, you know, the family murder and like the mental health stuff, uh, you know, was, was the murderer crazy, you know, like, and the Indian burial ground stuff and the, like, and the home anxiety, you know, this is a nice home that was really expensive and what happens if they have to sell it, you know, like, as you know, as you say, like at a time when people are like, oh, what happens if we have to sell the house, all this stuff, like it all, you know, like it all just gets thrown in there and, uh, you know, reading it, um, you know, it's it's interesting because it doesn't feel sort of synthesized or cohesive. It just was like, here's another sort of weird thing kind of just kind of tossed in there. And on the one hand, I think it makes for a really bad art, you know, because unlike one of Stephen King's better novels where everything feels very sort of well worked out and sort of unified and sort of cohesive, this is just sort of like a big, just sort of like kind of all over the place mess. But then it also then, you know, spins off so many of these different ideas. and. Yeah, I mean, I think the Indian burial ground as a trope is is fascinating for the reasons that you talk about that it manages to gather, you know, all of this stuff together. I guess the other thing I would say though is because you mentioned bury my heart at wounded knee, and I just finished um, uh, reading David Troyer's The Heartbeat of Wounded Knee. I don't know if you know um, this book, um, but you know, Troyer is basically writing um, against D. Brown's Bury, Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee. It's basically his argument is that, you know, like the, the thing about that popular narrative is that it sort of implies that, you know, Native American culture dies in 1890. And that's, you know, like that, that all that's left is this kind of straggly remnant, which is, you know, whose time has passed. And, and you know, um, Troyer's, I think he's Chippewa, and he is sort of pushing it back, pushing back against it and sort of arguing that, you know, that, that, that idea that the Indian is dead and gone is in fact not accurate. So again, like, you know, I think his reading would suggest that that part of what you're seeing there, um, that that sympathy that you're talking about comes about because of a, a presumed kind of postmortem, you know, that like, it's sort of like, it's only, it's only after white people can conceive of, um, you know, Native American cultures being tragically dead that, you know, they can then kind of wax nostalgic about it. And I think that's very different from, you know, the cultural properties of like the 50s and 60s and stuff like that, or 40s and 50s, I guess. White Americans could finally become comfortable with considering and acknowledging the history of the genocide and relocation of the Native Americans only after the idea that they were gone was perpetuated. And all that was seemingly left was ancient Indian burial grounds. Ironically, the Indian burial grounds of the Amityville horror tale was not even true burial grounds. In the book, it is claimed that this patch of land was actually where the Native Americans kept their insane and dying members because that land was actually haunted by demons and not even suitable for a sacred burial. The line that I, that keeps coming back to me is actually from William S. Burroughs. I think it's in the book, I can't remember, but um, you know, the, the where, and I'm paraphrasing here, but he's, you know, he's basically like, the evil was here, 
before the settlers, before the Indians, you know, and, and a lot of times this trope, and, and you see this in Pet Cemetery for sure, the idea is not that the even the the Indians are the problem, but the Indians were the first to come across the like the bad, the bad place, the bad medicine, and they 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 sort of knew its power. And so again, they're sort of sort of elevated into these kind of quasi mystical transcendental culture, but also at the same time, it's sort of an out, right? Because it's sort of like like the Native American genocide itself is not something that white people need to feel culpable for. Instead there's a sort of evilness, a kind of transcendental ahistorical evilness that um, exists in the land and it affected the Native Americans and then it affected the white people and it's sort of still around. And so it's, it's this kind of decontextualizing narrative that, that kind of removes and absolves all guilt from all the human players. And like, oh, and like, um, like in the most recent Ghostbusters, the one uh, with uh, Kate McKinnon and uh, Leslie Jones, there's that same motif about, you know, there's like this 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 point in Manhattan that's just like a bad place that, you know, there was like a there was supposed to be a, a, a peace treaty between the Lenape and the settlers, and instead everybody got massacred, and it's sort of like, no, the the Dutch just killed the Lenape because they were fucking craven monsters. I don't know if I can swear on this podcast. I'm sorry. Oh, um, you sure can. You're, you're so, amongst kindred spirits. Yes, yeah. it's fine. So, you know, so, so that kind of that, I think that, that theory is more prevalent than the like, you know, evil native savages um, because that you see that ever so often, but more often it's more invested in this kind of uh, a historical decontextualized evil that determines everything. So again, you kind of see the way that like folklore kind of quickly kind of cycles through a bunch of different evolutions until it kind of settles on the kind of most durable, um, you know, uh, best representative trope. So yeah, so the first time out, it's not really even an Indian burial ground. It's sort of this kind of place of Indian badness or whatever. In the film The Shining, made in 1980, it was the director, Stanley Kubrick, who inserted the line spoken by a caretaker who gives Jack and Wendy a tour of the Overlook Hotel and informs them that it was indeed built on Indian burial grounds. It is only two lines in the entire film, and nowhere in the novel does author Stephen King suggest this. It is entirely a Kubrick invention, and consequently, he created a film that was arguably the singular super-spreader cultural event that cemented the trope in the minds of the public. But King himself would take a cue from Kubrick and insert an Indian burial ground in Pet Cemetery, written in 1983. Fascinatingly enough, there was a real-life court case in Maine in the 70s, where the Wabanaki Confederation of Native Americans sued the state of Maine over lands that were by federal law entitled to them which amounted to almost 60% of the state. They won the case and settled for $81 million. But had they not settled monetarily, they could have indeed demanded the forced relocation of over 350,000 residents, thus greatly increasing the insecurity of white homeowners in the state. Stephen King made much use of this case in Pet Cemetery although he fictionalized this as a tribe of Mimacs, who sought to reclaim their land, and interestingly enough, this time, was not in the screenplay of the movie that King wrote himself. But that case is front and center in the novel, and best exemplified by the question put to the main character, Lewis Creed, by his wife Rachel. Honey, do we own this? 
Yeah, I mean, I think what I was not prepared for, I mean, I grew up reading Stephen King, you know, I read Pet Cemetery as a kid, um, but I don't think I was prepared for, you know, what I found when I was researching Ghostland about the um, the actual um, court case in, in Maine involving the Wabanaki that, that almost ceded something like 60% of the land of, of the state of Maine to the Wabanaki Confederacy. And so, you know, there was a... Um, there, there was a, a real undercurrent. I mean, I think this happens a lot, you know, like culture sort of is going through something one way or another and then a, a horror writer will, you know, tap into it in a way that then, you know, becomes part of an iconic, uh, you know, book or film or something like that. And then the, the context is sort of forgotten, you know, sort of allowed to be forgotten even as the iconic image sort of continues to persist. Like, I mean, this is very true of something like Stoker's Dracula or Shelley's Frankenstein, but I think it's also true of a lot of Stephen King's books that, you know, were one way or another sort of responding to specific cultural events out in the news, um, you know, in some way or another, sort of he was using them as like sort of grist for ideas, but those those sort of, you know, breaking news stories get forgotten and what you're left with is like, you know, the Stephen King story, like, like Cujo taking place in a Pinto, you know, when like Pintos were like, you know, in the news about being a dangerous thing. Like that was just like, you know, like a lot of, like it's it's a really like, early Stephen King in particular is a really good way to kind of get a kind of genealogy of like, you know, white middle-class anxiety in the late seventies and early eighties. It's sort of crazy um, how different the landscape would have been had that, that uh, court case sort of run its course. And they, they had, uh, you know, the, the Wabanaki had like, you know, the complete legal standing. And that's why the, the state had to settle because there was really, there was really nothing to be done about it. So yeah, sort of a, a strange kind of what if. And as you heard at the start of the show, this trope is so ubiquitous and cliched that it actually becomes comedy, only reinforcing the trope even deeper in our culture, especially through laughter. It first sort of came into my consciousness, like as an adult, you know, before I'd really started researching this stuff in, in an um, episode of the Venture Brothers, this, um, you know, animated um, sick, uh, comedy on Adult Swim where, the, you know, it's a, it's a trope in one of these episodes. So like by that point, it's just sort of like, you know, in, in less than 25 years or so, it had gone from being this kind of not really thought of idea to, to a just sort of, you know, horror cliche that just sort of happened, you know, when you just needed a casual reason for why land was buried. So I guess that's sort of the evolution of it. And that's true of a lot of horror tropes, right? It's like, you know, it, the whole thing about, you know, a horror innovation is it's really terrifying, you know, the first time, the first, you know, the first, um, you know, girl with long straight black hair you know out of the ring like you know the first time it's like scary and then almost immediately gets parodied to death and so i think it's really hard to like maintain the kind of you know frizzing around something scary without it immediately sort of you know devolving into to parody but I, yeah it's definitely true it's sort of you know it's it's in that sense it's sort of amazing that the indian barrel ground lasts as a viable horror concept as long as it does because everything else gets sort of mercilessly parodied almost instantaneously. We also had to ask about one more of the issues that Colin had brought forth in his book, The Unidentified. There he tells the story of Mary Rowlandson, who was taken captive by Native Americans in 1675, and after her release wrote an account of her captivity. This would be the first captivity narrative, with over 700 more being published by 1800. 
Colin offers in this book that these captivity narratives would actually be reborn as alien abduction stories of the 1970s and 80s. Yeah, I mean, again, these these captivity narratives were kind of they were very central to a, a kind of founding story of America that that you know the the, the uh, native cultures were sort of you know um, taking particularly women um, and you know young people and sort of you know um, abducting them and sort of you know doing something for them and and their return and deliverance um, was proof of God's grace. You know, Mary Rowlandson's uh, captivity narrative has this incredibly long title that is um you know sort of uh, it's all it's basically the glory of god is the is the shortest version of the title you know being the you know abduction and narrative etc 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 but it's sort of like you know so her experience is there you know sort of shaped by cotton mather to um tell a story about about um god's grace and god's deliverance through this sort of horrible story and so um, so the captivity narratives, you know, I mean, you know, with the, the alien abduction narrative, sort of similarly, you have a, a story of this, you know, kind of, you know, you know, white uh, middle class people being abducted by these sort of foreign things and then sort of taken and then they return. And, you know, again, similarly, it's like, you know, it's not just like, a well, isn't this a weird story that happened to me? It's, it's a story of deliverance and redemption. Um, that gets told, you know, through the Andreessen affair and, you know, Whitley Stryber and stuff like that, that there's always a kind of moral and redemptive arc that, that drives these things. So, um, yeah, I mean, uh, uh, that's a thing I could say about that, I guess. <laughs> yeah. So we asked Colin, are you just a debunker of the paranormal or just a skeptic or maybe a believer? There was certainly a change between Ghostland and the Unidentified because um, I, I was much more interested in preserving a kind of openness with Ghostland that sort of would be welcoming either to believers or skeptics um, because I thought I thought that trying to just I feel like I feel like talking about you know are ghosts real or not is sort of like talking about religion like you can't you're not going to convince anybody like you could you could produce a full spectral manifestation and a skeptic will explain it away. And conversely, you could, you could debunk everything and a believer will still believe her. And I believe, and I just like, there's just, it's fine. You know, like, so, so for me, it was sort of not interesting to delve into that, that aspect of it because it, it just wasn't going to go anywhere in a way that I thought was interesting with the unidentified though. Well, with, I mean, with those, what I what I could do is I could say like, you know, the history is wrong because that, you know, that, you know, like, I don't know, maybe this house is haunted, but if this house is haunted, it's not because somebody was murdered here in 1923, because nobody was murdered here in 1923. That's sort of like, that doesn't seem to me to be like a skeptical debunking. That just seems to be like, like you know, people who, a lot of people who do ghost hunting, they, they, really, they really claim to be interested in history. And I'm like, okay, so this is the history. If that's what you claim to be interested in, this is what it is, you know, again, that doesn't seem to me to be, and I'm not saying like that ergo ghosts don't exist, but with the unidentified, I felt like I was not, I wasn't going to go down that road with, you know, uh, do Jews really control the world or whatever, you know, like there, you know, like there, there were a lot more like very dangerous conspiracy theories that I talked about in the unidentified that I was just not interested in having any kind of ambiguity, ambiguity or openness or whatever. I mean, you know, like, like Henry Bauer, who is the the, the Loch Ness monster believer, um, but also happens to be, 
um, like a, a virulent homophobe, homophobe and an AIDS denier. Like I wasn't gonna like celebrate him in any way, shape or form. And like, and you know, and I mean, and that doesn't mean that every Nessie believer is, you know, a homophobe, but I did want to point out, you know, that like he, he is someone who, who started on this kind of rejection of mainstream science and merge that with, you know, what I assume which is sort of latent bigotry to produce like really dangerous theories about AIDS and its spread. And so like, so, you know, I, yeah, so the, so with the unidentified, I, I felt a little bit more comfortable saying, no, no, we're not going to have that kind of conversation because this is bullshit. And so we asked Colin for some final words. The Freudian phrase, the return of the repressed is maybe overused, but I feel like it's a good shorthand for how a lot of this stuff works is, you know, I think that American history is far more unresolved and unsettled than we assume it is. Um, But there are things that are sort of not generally sort of talked about in polite society when it comes to American history in sort of favor of a kind of more kind of homogenous narrative through line of, you know, triumph after triumph or something like that. And so these things that don't sort of fit that, that sort of you know, Whiggish history of sort of, you know, America constantly improving and constantly getting better, they get sort of buried and repressed down. And one of the ways they come back to light is through, you know, through ghost stories, through fringe fringe beliefs, through conspiracy theories, these all become ways for us to um, work through, I think, a lot of those, um, you know, conflicted or ambiguous attitudes towards, um, you know, the kind of central aspects of American culture, you know, I mean, with haunted houses, I think it chiefly has to do with the idea of home ownership, which is such a central mythology to, um, you know, American culture, not just like in a kind of, you know, post-war middle class way, but also, you know, um, in a way that drove, you know, manifest destiny and westward expansion and the, the appropriation of indigenous lands in the first place, you know, that it was sort of like, the way to sort of, you know, take over these lands was to encourage settlers to homestead and sort of claim acreage as their own. And so, you know, we have sort of long ago weaponized homeownership and, and now it's sort of, you know, it's, it's sort of unsettled and it's not a sort of simple and unproblematic, um, you know, kind of American ideal. And I think that's, that just comes through in a lot of these, these kind of beliefs and and stories, I think. We, weaponized home ownership. Wow. Just think about that for a moment. No wonder there is so much repressed anxiety at the very heart of our American dream. So after this fascinating conversation, we decided to snoop around and see if we could find any local references to the Indian burial trope right here near home. And we found a doozy. Annually, the high-profile PGA Muirfield Golf Tournament takes place here in Dublin, Ohio just outside of Columbus on Memorial Day weekend. It was founded in 1976 by golf legend Jack Nicklaus, who is a native of the area and even helped design the course upon which the tournament is played. It boasts a purse of almost 9 million and is covered nationally. It is an event in which central Ohioans take great pride and attend with almost religious zeal. But here's the other thing. It rains almost every year, delaying and suspending the tournament, sometimes for days. Why is that happening? It couldn't just be because May in Ohio often brings a deluge of rain our way. I know that because my birthday is May 25th and almost always near Memorial Day. And as a kid, since the early 60s, my outdoor birthday parties would often get canceled because of endless rain or at least moved inside. 
Well, we just chalked it up to wacky Ohio weather. Well, the people of Central Ohio and the tournament suspected otherwise. Within the last 20, 30 years, a notion has arisen that the curse of Chief Leatherlips is haunting the tournament and causing all of the inclement weather. Leatherlips was a member of the Wyandotte, one of the local Native American tribes in the area during the 18th and 19th century. When the golf course was built, they did indeed move Leatherlips' remains to another nearby location. But according to his memorial plaque located on Riverside Drive, near the site of his execution, he was a good friend of Indian and white man alike. Then why doesn't he like golf? The historical story gets even better. Near the end of his life, Leatherlips signed the Treaty of Greenville and encouraged cooperation with white settlers. This policy of collaboration and accommodation of white settlers led to the conflict with a movement led by two Shawnee brothers, Tecumseh and Tenskwatawa. In 1810, they condemned Leatherlips to death for signing away native lands. And, wait for it, witchcraft. Witchcraft! Leatherlips' own brother, Roundhead, along with six other Wyandots, carried out the death sentence and brought Leatherlips to Dublin, where he was executed with a tomahawk. There his remains lay until they were moved during the construction of the golf course. The belief in the curse has apparently been taken somewhat seriously, in that according to local lore, and particularly a newspaper article, it seems peace offerings have been made. This 1997 AP article states, In 1993, when the memorial was delayed by rain for the fourth straight year, and 11 of 18 years overall, Barbara Nicholas, wife of Jack Nicholas, tried to do something about it. Arnold Palmer's wife, Winnie, suggested that if Murfield Village was built over an old cemetery, that a glass of gin left at the burial site of Teeth Leatherlips, it rests in the trees beyond the practice fairway, might mollify all angry spirits. So, late on a Thursday night, during the 93 tournament, and again during this Friday afternoon suspension, Barbara Nicholas made trips to a nearby cemetery and monument to Chief Leatherlips. Both times, she left a glass with gin in it. Jack even drove her that Thursday night, albeit reluctantly. I had nothing to do with it, absolutely nothing, he said at the time in mock disbelief. She just said, maybe I'll give them a little gift this year, and maybe next year it'll be something really nice. And why would she offer gin to a dead Native American? Why gin? Why not a pumpkin pie or maybe some tobacco? Well, we're not going to surmise officially and just leave that conclusion up to your own discretion. Needless to say, the offerings didn't work. So to this day, the chief Leatherlips rain keeps pouring down on every Memorial Day tournament. As many Ohio golf fans grudgingly put up their umbrellas, look to the cloudy dark sky, and curse Leatherlips himself. From 1616 to 1620, a plague that was brought by European fishermen to the coasts of what we now know as Massachusetts decimated the Native American Wampanoag Confederacy, particularly the Band of Pawtuxet. By 1620, only one Pawtuxet member remained, and only because he had been kidnapped by the English several years before and taken to Europe. In 1620, as the ship, the Mayflower, languished in the cold and icy bay, its own passengers sick and dying, scouts were sent to the land to attempt to find a location for them to build their new home after barely surviving a grueling ocean voyage. As they searched the coastline day after day, the scouts came upon an abandoned Patuxet settlement. Skeletons and bones of the Native American dead lay strewn across the ground, as the fury and quickness of the plague had left no time and no one 
to bury the dead. The very presence of these bones assured the scouts that this was indeed a village that was most certainly abandoned. It was perfect. This is where they would settle. So, in reality, the new English settlement that would become known as the Plymouth Colony was, for all intents and purposes, built on Indian burial grounds, or at very least, over Native American remains. But that first winter, many of the passengers on the Mayflower were too sick to leave the ship, and two to three of them were now dying daily as the vessel tossed about in the rough, frigid winter waters. They would begin bringing the dead to the land at night and burying them in the very ground they had chosen as their new home. And so it was in that cruel winter of 1620, before bloody hostilities would soon commence, that although unintentionally, the bones of both Pilgrim and Indian alike would be buried together. This land is your land, and this land is my land, from the California to the New York Island, from the Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream waters. This land was made for you and me. Thanks so much for spending some time with us, and thanks again so much to Colin Dickey for joining us in our conversation. You can access all of Colin's books and articles at colindickey.com. And we encourage you to send us your local Indian burial ground stories from your own communities. We'd love to share them. This show was created and produced by me, Shane McClelland, and Lori Gum. Next time on The Q Files, the 1876 Kentucky Meat Shower. Be weird. Stay curious. These are The Q Files. And oh, hey, have a safe, healthy, and happy Thanksgiving. <laughs>